Hello and welcome to Enlightened Empaths, your community for the spiritually awakened. You know, Denise, you and I are always talking about how grateful we are that we finally recognize and understand what it really means to be an empath. And you and I were talking recently about how hard it can be when we were children and teens, not knowing these terms, not understanding why we were feeling all the feels and trying to discern whose emotion is whose. And so we thought today's show, we just want to focus on what does it mean to be an empath as a child and a preteen and a young person? And what are some tips and techniques and strategies that parents and friends and adult guardians can use to help their empathic young people really embrace and, uh, and accept their authentic self. Exactly. And I think as we've said this a lot, all the children coming in are not shutting off their light. They're staying very empathic. They're staying very aware and in sync with what's going on in the world. And as we move into these transitional times and through these transitional times, any skills and support we can give these children is going to make their path so much easier and productive. If, imagine if we had had this base of knowledge when we were 5, 10, 15, 25. I mean, it, it just it changes the whole game. It really does. And, and I think little people in particular right now who are empathic are feeling the anxiety in the air, the amped up energy, the anger, the frustration, the the sense of powerlessness as we're all stuck at home and wondering, when is this quarantine going to end? Are we going back to school? What will my school year look like? Will I have to wear a mask? How am I going to socially distance in the cafeteria? So I think little people are feeling really nervous and anxious. Uh, who I think any child is feeling that right now, but especially those little kids who are empathic as well. Everything is heightened for them because they don't know and they're looking to parents and guardians and we don't know. We can't tell our, our children, oh, in August, you're going to go back to school and everything's going to be great because we don't know and it doesn't look like that's happening. So I thought that we would just start with some techniques for little people and then we can move up to teenagers. Does that sound good? That, that sounds good because it is a continuum. And it doesn't go away if you're if you're if you're an empath, you get to do it the whole time you're here. Isn't that fantastic? Well, I do think though, if empaths don't understand who and what they truly are, they will pretend that it's not there by pushing it down. And I think that's why you have a lot of teens experiencing uh, experimenting with drugs and alcohol and other issues that suppress and repress emotions. So this is why I'm also super passionate about helping spiritual empathic children to really learn healthy, productive, practical techniques to embrace all that they're feeling. So I think with children in particular, you have to focus on the language you're using. If your little five or six-year-old comes home from school and says, I, don't ha I didn't have a good day and it hurts in my tummy, you can't say to them, oh, sweetie, that's because you're an empath. <laughs> because they're going to be like an M what? So you have to use words and language that they can understand. One of the things I used to tell my little girls when they would come home from school, and I remember one year, 
my, my youngest had a teacher who wasn't a mean teacher, wasn't a bad teacher, but she just yelled a lot. You know those people who even their normal speaking voice is very intense and yelling? Yes. It yes. really upset her. Like she would come home kind of like, I don't know if she was yelling at us or if she was just in a bad mood. Like she couldn't process it. And I would have to tell her, sweetie, people like you and I are like static cling dryer sheets. And we walk around absorbing everyone else's energy. And so that helped her giving an image to what she was doing. And I would also tell her, well, I told all my kids that all of us walk around with an invisible bubble around ourselves. And most people can't see it. Very, very few people can see that light, that aura around people. But for the average person, we're not going to see that bubble. And inside that bubble that's around everyone, they carry all their thoughts and emotions, their fears, their worries and hopes. And sometimes when your bubble bumps up against their bubble, you can feel all those feels that they're carrying in their bubble. So do you know what I mean by switching language, like by using metaphors and stories and visual examples so that they'll start to understand exactly what's happening to them? But it also empowers them to not see this as a detriment to be sensitive. And it's giving them skills so that they can learn to acclimate and adjust to situations where they might be feeling very vulnerable or exposed, or if it's a toxic situation. I mean, that's a beautiful, beautiful way because even we always are saying, be more conscious of how you word things, how you put things out to the universe to give children any children, those skills so that they can be more conscious of, of what their environment is and their part in it is a beautiful, beautiful gift. I agree. And I always try to avoid questions like, what's wrong? Because just that question implies that something's wrong. So if your child is walking around feeling sad or angry or upset, when you say what's wrong, the first thing they think is something's wrong with me. Or instead of saying, why are you so sad today? Or why are you in such a bad mood? Maybe not make those guesstimates on exactly what's happening with your child. For me, I have always found that doing activities with them and then using that distraction of the activity to ask open-ended questions is much more helpful. So you can consider you know, playing Barbies or building Legos or just drawing or going for a walk and just saying, how do you feel today? Or if you had to use an emoji to describe your day, which one would you choose? Open-ended questions that don't imply any judgment or any label to help them learn to find the words to express how they are feeling, I think is going to be really helpful. Well, and I think it also lets them know that they're protected and they're supported and that we do understand. And even to this day, I'll say to my sons, it's just if I have a weird feeling or whatever, I'll just pop a text, doing okay, or are you okay? And that's kind of our code language. It always has been. It's not, there's not something wrong. There's not something right. It's very neutral, but it just opens it up to, oh, this is going on, or I've had a hard day, or things are going great. It just finds something whatever that is for you and your child, or if you're an educator, or if you're a counselor, or if you're a guardian, 
something that is almost a code between the two of you. And it's interesting when you bring up doing something. When my sons were younger, we, I remember this vividly because I had no idea what I was doing, but they were boys and interested in things. And I just, we were all going through a very, it was an interesting time in our lives. We'll just leave it at that. And I ripped out an old radio that we had in the van I used to drive. And we went and bought a cheap stereo to put in. And they helped me and they're handing me tools and we're looking at the wires and we figured it out and we thought, and this was before you YouTubed everything, but it did. It allowed them to talk and open up while we were doing the project. And it also, it was, it was something that they felt value in. They felt like they were really helping. They felt empowered. And I think that can also be if you have a child that's feeling vulnerable is to give them something that feels real. Yes, real and tangible and that they can use to distract themselves from some of the intense energy, especially that's going on today. I think it's also important to really listen to your child's worries and fears and not diminish them. So if you're tucking them into bed at night and they start telling you that they're worried about a hurricane coming or they're worried that the world is going to stay shut down forever, rather than saying, oh, everything's going to be just fine. Now go to bed, honey. I think it's important to listen to them and help them talk through that in whatever way resonates with you and your child, but not diminishing their worries, obviously not you know, going, yeah, I know, it's really scary, isn't it? <laughs> but finding that happy balance in between and understanding your child's specific worries. Like when I was a kid, one of my unique worries to myself was sleepovers. I never liked going to slumber parties. Did you? No. I wonder if that's an empath thing. I always knew I had to go. It was, I guess it was FOMO. We didn't have that word back then. But I always felt compelled to go. But I would be anxious and worried about it. Like, what if I didn't feel right when I got there? What if people left me out? What if I couldn't fall asleep? Uh, what if so I, I didn't know it back then, but some houses just gave me creepy energy and some houses gave me like a cozy energy. And I never wanted to be long in a house that gave me creepy energy. And, you know, kudos to my mom because she would always say, let's make a plan. If you're worried about going over there, let's make a plan. If you don't feel right when you get there, just say you have a stomach ache, ask them to call me and I will come and get you. Right. And so that was always our code. If I ever did go to a house and even in middle school, I mean, I was, I was such an innocent. And in middle school, I went to a slumber party with this new girl and you know, they invited boys over and they introduced cigarettes. And I was like, I, my stomach hurts. I, I need to call my mom. <laughs> <laughs> but it helped, you know, to have that plan in place. And so if there's something that your child worries about personally in their life, I think it's a good idea to meet them halfway and help them plan for that without exaggerating it, without I don't know, is caving in the right phrase? You don't want to nurture their worries and fears, but you do want to validate them, hear them out, and help them create a plan, like a, like a plan B. And this is a really good point because we had just moved back to Maine from Washington State. We'd driven across the country, the boys and I, right? We got into the house we were living in literally a couple weeks before 9-11 happened. So not only had we relocated, started new schools, started this, it was 
just a, a very interest, again, in, a different interesting time in our lives. And I remember my youngest son was first grade and he said, could a plane come and hit us on the Holly Road? Could a plane come out of the sky and hit our little house on the Holly Road? And as an empath, I just wanted to sob and grab him and say, oh my God, no, we're safe, don't worry. But instead, if you're the empathic parent with an empathic child, you have to find that strength within yourself so you exactly what you just said so that you don't add to any anxiety or fear. You can empathize, you can feel it, you can encourage it, but you have to let them know they're safe. Yes, and, and help them feel like a co-participant in that safety. Right. One of my friend's sons has a huge fear of natural disasters. I mean, oh. he's afraid of tsunamis, uh, and especially since we've been hit recently with hurricanes, he's terrified of hurricanes. And so rather than saying, yeah, you know, these hurricanes are no joke and they're getting worse thanks to global warming, you know, she's not doing it. <laughs> but she took him to a Home Depot or Lowe's type store and bought a big bin and said, let's make a hurricane preparedness kit. See, that's brilliant. And, you know, he helped her pick out the lantern he wanted to use and the batteries and a fun little like headlamp thing. And then they picked out little games they could play that didn't require screams or screens or electricity. So being, being a co-participant with your child, I think, empowers them. Now, one thing my parents did for me that I don't think is a good idea, but it, at the time I loved it. But as a parent, I'm like, I don't know. If I felt uncomfortable in any situation, my mom would say, well, just change the situation. Like if I didn't want to go to school one day, any day, she'd go, okay, stay home. If I didn't like my teacher, she'd go to the principal and get me moved. When I got to high school, if I had a job and I didn't like the boss, she'd go, well, just quit. And as a kid, I was like, this is really cool. And my other friends were like, man, your mom rocks. Oh, if I miss the bus, she was like, I'm not driving you, just stay home. So I, I loved that as a kid, having that opt out. But when I got older, I realized that did not give me useful skills. Mm -hmm. So when my kids have had difficult teachers, I don't complain to the principal. Instead, I work with my child to work with that teacher. And they'll ask me, like, can't you just say something and get me switched? And I'll say, no, honey, because in life, you are going to have crappy bosses. It's just a fact. Not every one of your bosses will be yucky, but you're going to have at least one. And you need to learn how to work with that person. And so I think as an empath, well, I shouldn't say that as a blanket statement. I know for me, when the energy feels too intense, I morph into a turtle. That's my go-to. I'll just tuck into my little shell. I don't think that's healthy. And it has taken me all of my 20s and most of my 30s to work out of that shell. So I think as parents of young empaths, we need to teach them when, when the going gets tough, you don't get going. You stay and you work through it. Right. Because if that goes back to giving our children as many skills as possible. Now, another part of this is, and now our audience is, we're empaths. We get this. We understand. If we have empathic children or children who may not be empathic, on a core level, we understand this. But you may have a niece, a nephew, a grandchild, a student in your classroom, a neighbor that you know is very empathic, the, the one that got airdropped in, that the rest of the family doesn't really see that. 
So part of your role might be to find a way to reach out to other adults and let them know what they're dealing with. Say some more about that. <laughs> okay, I will. Um, well, I mean, do you, do, are you saying like you need to tell their teachers this child is empathic? Or, okay, that's a good example because when I've worked in different school settings, some teachers I have to the core of myself so much respect that they see the child for who they are. They know not to make the shy child stand up in the middle of the room and say, okay, now don't be shy, just speak up or to make jokes or look at how she blushes. And I've seen this happen. So maybe as another professional, finding a way to work that into a, a conversation. And see that you get into that fine line of not wanting to confront people, but wanting to make sure these kids are taken care of. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I do think it's important to help other people around your little empath understand. I, I don't like that word shy. It has so many no. connotations. And so I think using different words to explain your child, even sensitive can have negative connotations in our society. But not so that it becomes an excuse, yes. not so that it becomes, oh, well, she can't because blah, 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 or he can't because this, this, this. No, 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 no. This is about people realizing they may have to approach this child in a, a different manner. Okay, a, good ex a better example might be some people of a certain generation may not really understand this whole empathic or sensitive or that children are gender dysmorphic or whatever it might be. They might just think they're being fill in the blank. So finding a way to relate that to an, uh, maybe an older relative or an older neighbor so that, again, I keep coming back to this word of empowering these kids to realize they're okay. It's okay that you're sensitive and you feel things. It's okay that, and find a way so that that child realizes this isn't a bad thing. So one of the things that happened with my son who really doesn't see himself as highly sensitive, but was very, very, very sensitive when he was younger, he would, we had moved and he had said, well, you know, this kid wasn't nice to him on the bus. And I said, well, you know what, put your, sh and we would joke, say, shield up. And then I said, but when you give him something to work with, when you show a reaction, when you show how much it's hurting you, they're not going to stop. You have to show that it's not hurting you. And that sounds barbaric, but it really isn't because it's teaching these kids to protect themselves energetic, energetically from people who may not be kind. It's not taking away from their kindness, but there are bullies. There are mean people. There are people who are not going to be kind. And I think that's just as much of a disservice to these little kids is not to teach them that everyone isn't going to understand how sensitive you are. Or be nice about it. Right. Right. But I think, I mean, fingers crossed and, and everything else, that we're stepping away from that mentality. And that's part of the transition that we're in right now. I agree. One thing I think that is crucial for little empaths is creating routines. And I know some parents resist that. And I know other parents are having a really hard time with that right now during this quarantine time. It's, we have to reschedule and rework everything that's, that we're used to. But empaths in particular who are sensitive and on so much of the time, they feel comforted by a routine. 
Now, I don't mean it has to be rigid and strict where 8 a.m. we're at the table and 8.30 we're washing our hands and 9 o'clock. You know, I don't mean that. But just having something that they know every morning we do this, at least once a day we do this, and the bedtime routine happens this way. Having that sameness is very, very soothing and comforting to an empath. And it can be little things. Like one of the routines I always did with my kids when they were little, in the morning, I would have them imagine getting into Cinderella's carriage and sealing the door of the carriage with their finger. And I would say, see that carriage glowing with light so that I was teaching them how to put a bubble of light around themselves. Mm-hmm. If you have little boys or little girls who are into Star Wars, you can get the little lightsaber toy and do that around them and, and really visualize the bubble of light protection around them and say, may the force be with you. But having some type of routine in the morning where you are getting them into the habit of protecting and shielding their energy can not only be fun, but seriously helpful and it works. And during the day, having a routine for them that does include chores. Children as, as young as four and five can learn to make their bed. I remember reading, if you have your child start to make their bed at the age of three or four, even if it's just pulling the covers straight, by the time they are five or six, they'll know how to do it. So it doesn't even matter if they do the chores well. It's just getting into the habit of having that responsibility. And then scheduling in downtime. I think that is so, so important. When my kids gave up nap time, I thought my world was going to come to an end. I was like, what am I going to do without that hour and a half to recharge my batteries? And so that's when I instigated quiet time. And I still do this. And my kids are teenagers. They love it. You just have an hour a day with no screens, no TV, and they can just do anything quiet. They can go for a walk. They can go for a bike ride. They can draw. They can read. They can work on a puzzle, play with a toy, do a board game, just something quiet. Now, they'll fight you on this. Most kids will. I know mine did. But after a while, they're going to really recognize how useful that quiet time is. And I think for little empaths in particular, having a fairly strict bedtime routine is so, so comforting. Bedtime can be a scary time for empaths because when they lay in bed at night, that's when all the emotions they've been carrying around from themselves and other people bubble up to the surface. And so nighttime can be frightening for them. That's where all their thoughts come and and march into their head. That's when some kids start having nightmares and night terrors. But if you have a fairly rigid bedtime routine, it's going to soothe and prepare your sensitive child for the night. So this is also the time if you have a psychic child when they're going to really sense or see spirits. So creating bedtime rituals alleviates a lot of this anxiety. I don't think for an intuitive sensitive child, you can ever say, okay, time for bed, brush your teeth, I'll tuck you in later. They need that structure that you provide to give them a sense of peace and serenity. So create a ritual around bath time, pajama time, story time, For younger kids, like when my kids, when they were little, their bedtime was eight and I would have dinner at five or 5.30 and I would start the bedtime ritual at 6.30. We would play meditative music. We would say prayers. We would take a salt bath. You know, I would just run a bath through them and I would put a couple of teaspoons of sea salt and Epsom salts in there. Make sure your child's, you know, not allergic to that before doing it. But we would have a very soothing bath. They'd have their, their little toys in there. 
and then we would read a story. I think it's just so important to have the same ritual over and over and over to help them go gently into their sleep time. Those are all excellent um, things. And, and all, all children flourish with structure because it gives them security and stability. And not, and again, I agree with you entirely, not with rigidity, but with they know what's coming next. And a lot of times with empathic children, knowing that like those pre-teaching moments, we're going to leave in 10 minutes. So make sure you have 10 more minutes to play with your toys and then we're going to leave. There is a sense of security with that. And I think that's what we're trying to do is protect them, but also give them the skills that they need. And, you know, another thing I'd like to add with the importance of, and you and I can both testify to this, the impact of harshness, of of screaming, of uh, manipulation, of any type of verbal, physical, emotional assault. And assault is such a strong word. But when you think about, we've developed ways to navigate this world as empaths based on our experiences, based on what we've learned. These little folks don't even have that yet. They're coming out just so very, very defenseless energetically when you think about it. So being, um, making sure that whatever we're doing, or if you see someone else, be cognizant of the impact that that could be having on that little person and what you may need to do to help them through it. That is such a good point because they're going to be impacted not only by yelling and fighting in the home or in the school, but they're also going to be impacted by the TV you watch. I remember when my kids were little at nighttime, I would watch TV while they were after that, I put them to bed and we would watch like we would watch stupid reality TV or the news and my kids could hear it and they would get upset by that. So anything that is loud or abrasive is going to impact a little empath child. And so you have to be really aware of that. Even the cartoons I would watch with my kids, I, we had to watch the quiet, gentle ones like Little Bear or Franklin. The loud ones, they, they just couldn't, they didn't like them. The other part to this is we're talking to an audience and we're talking about our experiences but your children are going into situations where there may be equally empathic children who haven't had the benefit of someone providing structure or someone providing so teaching them empathy for other children and how to not own that if there's a a child that has severe behavioral issues or has um outbursts or is violent we, we have to let, we have to give our children the skills to be able to navigate that as well. Yes. You know, there's a great book by Dr. Seuss called My Many Color Days. Have you read that one? I'm not sure. It's I'm so pretty sweet. big Seuss fan. So you, I it, think I probably have. You probably have. It's, it's a board book and it'll say like, some days I'm loud and angry. Oh, and yes. Loud. Yes. Yes. I remember having a lot of fun with that one. Yeah. 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 I love that book. <laughs> And so we would use that often to say, are you having a red day, a yellow day, a gray day? And so I think using, using books like that can be super helpful. Also, I think it's good to have other rituals or you could call them traditions to help your child learn to process their emotions. Like, for example, 
we had for years, and sometimes I still pull it out. It sits in my dine in a basket in my dining room, a gratitude journal. And so every night at dinner, I'd pull it out and I'd write the date down, and I'd make everyone go around the table and say what they were grateful for that day. Again, my kids resisted it; they rolled their eyes. But now when we pull that book out and they go through, they love it and they crack up over the the little and the big things that they were grateful for. And at least it got them into the practice and the habit of focusing on the positive, especially in a bad day. Another thing that my dad did for me when I was a kid, he went to, I think he, I can't remember, Guatemala or Mexico. He got me worry dolls and he came home from the business trip and he gave me this little this little bag and it had all these little dolls in it. And he said, these have been handmade by special spiritual healers. And every time you feel worried or anxious, you pull a little worry doll out of this bag and you tell it to the doll, tuck it her or him under your pillow. And when you fall asleep, they will fly up to heaven with your worries where God will hear them and take them from you. I loved that. And that really, really helped me as a kid. And it gave you something tangible to hold on to. Yeah. We also have, I usually only do this in the summer. And of course, I haven't pulled it out this summer because it's a different summer. But usually, mm-hmm. I have a big jar that I put in the kitchen. And, every, and I have all post-it notes in it. And every time we do something fun, there's all pens in there too. The kids will write down that memory from that day and fold it up and put it in the memory jar. And then New Year's Eve, one of our rituals is we pull out that memory jar and we read through all the memories from the year. And then then what I do is I put them in an envelope and I write the year on it. So I save them. I don't know if one day they're all going to go through them, but it makes me feel better that they'll actually remember, you know, some of the fun, happy things we did. But (laughs) But it's just a really nice ritual to, again, help them to focus on the positive. Now, two meditations I want to mention and then we'll switch into the older uh, empaths, teenagers, but two meditations that I've used that have helped my kids a lot. One is the cloud meditation. And this is where you, you have, you guide your child while they're falling asleep. Sometimes I would do it when we were driving to school though. I'd say, just close your eyes and listen to my voice. And I would have them imagine jumping onto a cloud and you, you visualize the cloud lifting up, 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 higher and higher and higher so that you're symbolically teaching them how to lift and raise their vibrations. And as that cloud gets up, up, up high, you have them visualize it floating over a calm ocean. And then tell them to think about any worry or fear or something they're angry or mad or sad about. And you walk through each of those. So you say, think about something that made you really angry this week. Put that memory in a ball and wrap it in your hands. See it in that ball, that angry situation, and toss it over the cloud into the ocean where it will be taken from you. And then think about something that you're really worried about and you're afraid for and it's keeping you up at night. Visualize that, put it in a bubble, and toss it over the cloud into the ocean. And you just go through that until they have tossed every negative emotion out into the ocean off their cloud. And then when you're done, you can have them visualize the cloud going down, down, down to the ground so that you're helping to ground their energy. That can be very soothing for them. Another one that's really great for pulling in positive energy is I called it the tooth fairy meditation. So again, this is for little kids, but you have them visualize their, their idea of the tooth fairy. 
and you have them visualize that she has this big tube of magical toothpaste and she's putting it into the top of their head and as she squeezes it that thick toothpaste filled with love and light from the higher heavens is coming into their body and scrubbing them clean like a mr magic eraser of anything that's worrying them or making them sad or anxious and you you just walk them through visualizing that magical toothpaste scrubbing through their head neck shoulders going down into their fingers their chest their their legs their toes throughout their whole body. And then you would talk them through visualizing the tooth fairy taking her magic wand and sprinkling glitter of love and happiness all over them, their aura. You can have a lot of fun with that. And because meditation and visualization are also great tools for older children as well. So to have that be part of normal. One thing I'd like to add to the, and thank you for sharing those. Those are great. And, and people could adjust them to their, their children at home or children that they care for. So beautiful, beautiful tools. Uh, one of the things I just want to add before we move on is I have worked with a lot of children over the years in different, you have as well. And those little seeds of shame or self-doubt or we need to be really vigilant about how these kids embrace their their empathic abilities and their sense of self so that they don't carry these things throughout life. Because, and we've seen it where someone is feeling belittled in school and no one protects them or a family member makes a comment that uh, you can tell that it's having a big impact. I think that we need to start as a society and as a culture, and this is global, work on letting kids know that's not okay. It's not okay to feel that way. It's also not, um, you know, just, just being so aware of that. I, I can't emphasize it enough because I think for a lot, and I'm going to segue now into the, the older kids, I think that many of the, the behaviors, the emotional things that we see with empathic teens later on can be the result of those seeds that were planted when they were little tiny people that weren't taken care of or weren't acknowledged. Thank you for saying that. I think that's really important. And if you are dealing with a child who's being bullied, I think it's also crucial to never lie to that child. Empaths have natural lie detectors. And so if you are making light of the situation or even not telling a truth about it, like I, I was bullied in school when we moved halfway through through my second grade year, I cried every day. And so I was really bullied and called crybaby. And I remember I'd come home crying and my mom would say, well, they're just jealous of you. No, they don't like me. (laughs) There's nothing to be jealous of in this moment as I'm crying at my desk. And so that never helped me by just blaming the bullying on them. I know what she was trying to do, but I think it's so much better when you are dealing with an emotional or shameful situation like that to help the child process it in his or her own words and to not really blame or, or project or diffuse the situation, but to just have a dialogue and a conversation about it and say, gosh, that child must be going through so much, be filled with so much pain and hate for him or herself if they're saying that to you. And let's talk about things that you can do to protect yourself from that at school. So rather than just trying to put a Band-Aid on it, 
I just think it's important to shed light on it, you know, air it out and let them give the words to it. Exactly. And by giving them those skills, then as they do become more independent, because when teenagers become our empathic teenagers, where we start, they still have to do all the teenage stuff that God love them all. It's not easy. I've always said this, that middle school is no different now than it's ever been. You, hormones are flying all over the place, pecking order, social structures, seven, eighth, ninth grade, very, very transitional time for, for children. And so they're all in the process, all teenagers are in the process of developing their own sense of self. And it's so important that if your child is really sensitive, because it, and what's popping into my head, and I don't know why, is when, you know, around those years, there may be, do I fit in? Am I wearing the right clothes? I can't say that. I have to listen to this music. They're very, so, so, this isn't the word, but it's so concerned about how will other people view me or see me? I don't want to be different. I, well, we are different when we're empaths. And the, the kids who seem to be able to pull it off are the, the quieter ones. They're really sensitive. They have a super talent. They're very artistic or they're creative or they're really, really intelligent or the ones that can just kind of step into the background, do what they do. They seem to be able to navigate this transition a bit easier at times than some that may not have that or not have the supports in place at home. But one way for, for all of us is to watch how these teenagers act and interact with other people, but also how other people act and interact with them. So how do people perceive, because kids at home, our children, if we have an empath, they're safe, they're going to act silly, they might be very vocal, they might be fun and gregarious. And then in you talk to someone in a public setting and they say, why doesn't she ever speak up? Why doesn't he ever speak? As because they're safe at home, but then they can't transfer those skills into a, a more public situation. Do you agree with that? I do. And I, I can't stand it when teachers make a big deal of that. I remember when my oldest was in kindergarten, we were at a pizza restaurant with those big booths and she was talking a mile a minute because that's what she always did at home, just like you said. And about 10 minutes in, this teacher peeks over the booth and she says, is that Olivia? And we were like, oh, hi, Mrs. So-and-so. And she went on and on and on. I've never heard you say more than five words in class. Look at yeah. you go. And it just embarrassed my child. And I was like, please stop talking like this. And so I do think it's really important to let your child know being shy is not a bad thing. You want to be quiet? That's fine. Be quiet. You want to talk a mile a minute at home? Great. Just accepting them for who they are and making that a positive. And I think it's also important and crucial to have your child overhear you talking about them in a positive way. So I don't mean like if you have a friend over and you say, Johnny, come on out and show them your A's on your report card. I don't mean that. I mean, if you are walking and you bump into a neighbor and your kid's on the bike behind you, overhear them saying, gosh, you know, my child just did the nicest thing for a classmate and I just have to share it. I, I just think letting them hear you tell positive stories about them, I don't mean braggy stories, I just mean positive stories, is so great to boost their self-esteem. 
The other thing is, and this is interesting, and most people don't think about this, as empaths, a lot of times people will come and dump their pocket on us. They'll tell us all their stories. They will leave depleted. This can happen a lot for teenage empaths. Their friends will all dump their buckets and tell their stories and everything else. And then your child or this empathic child is feeling drained. And it, it's the same exact thing we feel, except without the skills we've developed over the years. This is going to sound weird, but I think we have to normalize this so that it doesn't become so woo-woo that kids don't feel comfortable applying it. Because it's great. If they grow up in a house where there's crystals and prayers and meditation, and, and actually meditation is one of the best things you can do for a teenage empath, is to teach them meditation. And when you're talking about implementing quiet time, that's also, if you think about it, it's a form of meditation. Because meditation will help them to slow down, become more aware of their emotions, to work and regulate their own behaviors. And they may need like be able to teach them little mini meditations they can go throughout the day when they're starting to feel really stressed out or if they need to reset or if they get too overwhelmed. They, it, I think those are useful skills that we use, but that are also so, so viable for these teenage kids. You know what the hardest part of being a mom of teenagers has been for me? learning to navigate social media. I don't know what I would have done as a kid if I knew via Instagram exactly what I was missing out on. Don't you find that such a hard aspect of childhood for our kids? See, now I've, I've thought about this because I was brutally, brutally shy. And, and then I left for college and I, by myself to a town where I knew no one, to a school where I knew no one in a different state. And I was that shy and it was hell. And I remember, I, I've thought about this so much about um, social media, how in school, how stressful, how debilitating, not, not for what I might've been missing out on or not being a part of, but, oh, my God, are they going to humiliate me? Are they going to do something that's going to take me out of the shadows? And I think about kids now, you know, that the, you read about these things, and it just, I cry. I cry every time I read it where kids have been uh, in the locker room and someone has posted something on social media or someone, you know, falls down and they, they keep a video and they put it up online. And that concerns the hell out of me for our empathic teenagers and children that they don't have that protection because always worrying and wondering is someone going to be humiliating me in a public way and there's nothing I can do about it and that's not that's, a happy and positive thing but it's real and it's true for these kids yeah and it's and it's a big deal and there's so little we can do about it I know a lot of, in middle school, the big trend for my kids and their friends, you'd go to a party and the parents would have a basket and they'd say, put your phone in here because we don't want you posting about this party and have kids who weren't invited, you know, find out. Which is but kind. It is kind, but it, it still doesn't work. They still no. somehow find out and know and it's hard. And, and then like you were saying, the, the, the public shaming that can happen with Instagram, it's so hard. And my first impetus as a parent is to fix it, to protect mm -hmm. it. 
And as teenagers, your whole way of parenting has to shift in many ways. Because I don't think our role is to fix it. It's to help them learn to deal with it in ways that are healthy and positive. And for my kids, and I don't know if this is true for all children, but for my kids, what helps the most is just me listening. Just listening to them talking about what it feels like to see their two best friends posting about their day together where they didn't invite my child. You know, like where's my first instinct is I'm calling their mothers. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't work. And if I kept doing that, they would stop talking to me and sharing their worries and anxieties. So I've, I've had to really shift my perspective as a mother of teens. And it's been very, very challenging because I can't, I can't kiss it and make it better. It's very, very different. And I think my job is to just hold space for them and to just be that safe, that safe shelter in the storm where they can just come and cry on my shoulder or rage about the injustice going on, ask questions, or just talk to me. Exactly. And giving these simple skills of they don't have to tell anyone they're putting themselves in a bubble or that they have tap roots coming out of their feet so that they can feel grounded and safe and strong, but giving them those skills and making them even normal in your house so that they can use them outside of, ho- of the home environment can be huge. Teaching teenage kids that it's okay to say no, the power of saying no, how to protect their, t- their downtime, to know their limits, that they, if they're overwhelmed in a big group, they probably don't want to sign up for an activity where that's going to be their whole day in this huge group of people. Helping them to draw lines, helping them to regulate their social media, to have more balance in their lives. But truly, what a gift to be able to say, no, that doesn't work for me, or no, I'm not able to do that. And I used to say to my sons, I said, just blame me. I don't care. Say my mother won't let me. I don't mind being the B word. And sometimes they'd use it and sometimes they wouldn't, but it gave them control over the situation. I um, do that all the time too. Well, I, I think it, it's, it makes gives them an out. Yeah. yeah. And everyone loves to complain about their parents. So, you know, make me the big B and everyone's happy. And one of the things that, you know, they say to teach your kids to choose their friends wisely and, and that's important. We, we say that for each other. Be careful who you're around. You're, you're going to absorb their energy, all of those things. We also know teenagers are going to be with who they want to be with no matter what we say. They are going to find those people that we, we are seeing red flags on an aircraft carrier, and they're just saying, well, that's my friend, and we do things. And we're, because a lot of times they can either be invisible or they can – mimic some of the behaviors that they're seeing. And this goes into what you said about self-medicating, I think, or, or partying or choosing drugs and alcohol or whatever it might be, because it lowers their inhibitions. They get to feel like they're hanging out with people in a normal way. And I, I mean, I'm using that word lightly because maybe what, what is seen as popular or fun or what other kids do, that's huge. That's huge, but I think for a lot of, and and I've talked to a lot of students, I've talked to a lot of young adults, it deadens that always feeling everything so intensely. And that's huge, that we're in a society 
or in situations where people feel the need. And I know adults and pastors do the same thing. They'll just say, it's too much. I need, to, I need to numb it out a little bit. And that's a big concern. That's a huge concern, but it's also real. It's a real concern. And I think a lot of teenagers are medicated on purpose. I mean, a lot of them are taking anti-anxieties or antidepressants. And so to switch from that to something you know, illegal isn't as big of a leap as it might have been for us when we were growing up. And so I, I just, I, I do think it's important to have conversations around that and to also use stories and to be really honest. Like with my kids, I am so honest with them. I am like, look, alcoholism runs in our family. Like you've got it on both sides. It's in the DNA. I'm not saying you can't touch that stuff when you turn 21, but right now it is illegal. You're not going to break the law. And you need to understand that this, we have a genetic propensity for this. And so I think, and I've also used stories like, you know, Denise, you're like me. I'm not a drinker. I'll drink a glass of wine if I go out socially, but I don't have liquor or wine or beer in the home. And I think my kids have gone to social situations with adults and they've seen them get silly and, and we'll come home and talk about it. And I'll say, look, middle school never ends. Like so many adults need need that lowering of inhibition. And I think we should be so grateful that, that we don't rely on that. So I just think having open conversations about that and, and talking to them truthfully and honestly about where, the, where that road ends, I think is really, really important. And I did have those years in my life where I partied a lot, but I, don't, I didn't continue it through all these years, but it made it easier to feel more like I could socially adapt. I don't judge anyone who's making that choice but I also completely understand where they're coming from. But and similar to what you said, I had a similar conversation with my sons growing up, and, and I said, it's not a matter of if you choose this, when you choose, if to, to drink or to try anything, if it feels too good, that's your red flag. That is your, for, for alcohol or, or substance abuse or anything that may be a genetic um, propensity in your family, giving the kids the, the wherewithal to know, I think that that's huge. That I, is such a huge thing to be aware of. I do too. Okay. Now, I don't think teenagers are going to meditate on their own. I'm sure there are teenagers out there who are meditating on their own because there are so many advanced souls coming to the earth right now. But most teens I know are like, no, I'm not going to sit in silence. And so I think we have to model that with them and for them if we want them to use these protection spiritual techniques to help them ground and engage in safer, healthier ways. And so you can do that through active meditation with them, or you could do yoga with them, or you could just go on YouTube and watch a Qigong video and go through the motions with them. Another thing I do, there are so many occasions in a year where my poor kids have to think about what they're going to buy me. I mean, there's Christmas and my birthday and Mother's Day, and it's ridiculous. And I always tell them, I don't need anything. You're not going to spend your money on you know, a candle. Don't worry about it. I always come up with activities that I make them do with me. Mm -hmm. So you know, for a birthday or a Mother's Day, rather than saying, yeah, I'd love that candle, I'll say, what I really want for my birthday is for all of us to just do this, this chakra yoga exercise that I found on YouTube. Oh. And then- they can't say no. 
because, you know, it's my birthday. And at least it exposes them. And then like of the three of my kids, one of them is going to go, that's really cool. I'd like to try that again. And so you can use, well, that kind of sounds manipulative, doesn't it, Denise? No, <laughs> you can use no, because, no because it's, it's valuing time as a family and activity and building that bond rather than stuff. Not that there's anything wrong with stuff. Right. And, and I think they don't, they don't, you know, Steve Jobs has this wonderful quote that I'm going to butcher, but he says something like, people don't know what they want until you show them. And I think the same can be true for teenagers. Like one of my kids is a really, really good writer. And since she hit high school, she hasn't been writing. You know how it is when you're in high school, you're just busy with your friends and work. And so for Mother's Day, she said, you know, mom, what do you want for Mother's Day? And I said, I want a short story. I don't care what it's about. Don't make it about me. Whatever you want to write about, you write about. And that, that will be my Mother's Day gift. And so she did. She wrote this super cool story about time travel. And there's seven portals in the world. And this girl has to find the key to the seven portals. Anyway, so for my birthday, she wrote part two. And now I found her yesterday morning in her room typing away on part three. Oh. I I don't think she would have done that if I hadn't have said, this is what I want for Mother's Day. So I think identifying your child's passion and encouraging them to pursue that in, in whatever way that works for them. I think that's kind of our job as parents is to guide them uh, to choose healthy outlets. That's beautiful, beautiful. And I just want to share that if you're in a public situation, so I'm going to use my the last job I had uh, in public education. I had a lot of kids coming and going. And every once in a while, there would be kids who would just kind of drift in and they'd hang out and they'd want to be a part of it. And I had this one young man years ago and he came in and he said, I just love coming in here because I just feel like I'm okay. And he was very empathic, very bright kid, but he just, they, they'll find you. So letting them know that you see them, that you see that they're sensitive, that you understand is a beautiful gift. Now, I did a Google looking for resources, and there is a book, and I'm going to read the blurb. It's called Diary of a Teenage Empath, The Awakening. And the woman's name, I have not read the book, but I'm going to read the little blurb, uh, Jeanette Folan, F-O-L-A-N. So if you Google Diary of a Teenage Empath, this is going to pop up in a lot of places. And here's the little blurb about what the book is about. 15-year-old Jenny knows she isn't normal. She can't tolerate being in a crowd, being touched, being near certain people, or sometimes just being. Then she meets a group of friends and their fearless leader, Nathan. She learns that like them, she is an empath, someone who is highly sensitive to the emotions and energy of the people and environment around her. Suddenly, Jenny's world becomes a mystical adventure of power, fear, tragedy, family secrets, and maybe even love. Woven into this fictional drama, is information and real-life exercises for empaths to learn how to develop and control their power. A supplemental workbook, Energy Skills for Highly Sensitive People and Empathic Teens is also available. So that may be something you want to explore or check out for your child or for yourself. They say the age range is 13 and older, so I'm sure there are some topics you wouldn't want to share with little tiny people, but it may be a way to open that door for your teenage child to 
realize that they're not alone in this. Yeah, I think that's a great suggestion. And I also think as, as parents and guardians, we can teach our empathic children and teens to give back because, again, that is going to empower them and give them a sense of, I have some control over the positivity that I'm contributing to the world. So you could do that in so many ways. You could go to the grocery store with them and every time there's a buy one, get one free, put those two things in your cart and then put the the second duplicate item in a cardboard box and bring it to your local food shelter. If you have a creative child who sews, you could have them sew masks to donate or you could have them sew blankets for the pet shelters. If you have an artistic child, you could guide them to make cards to send to people that are in nursing homes and feeling really alone right now. But I think having exercises and activities that you facilitate that help your child realize, yeah, it's kind of scary in the world right now, but I don't have to cave into that. I can, I can feed my light to the positive things that are always going to be present in the world can really help an empathic child and teenager feel safer and feel more grounded and hopeful. That's great, great, great advice. And I think that the fact that as a group of empaths, we can help. We can also, you know, teach them about the power of how uplifting music can be, why you want to watch things that empower and bring you light rather than dark energy. But suggest some podcasts, as you mentioned, yoga, meditation, Tai Chi, teaching them how to read other people's body language. Uh, you know, all of those are just everyday skills that can make such a difference in their quality of life and ability to enjoy their, their childhood and their teenage years. And also I want to add one more last thing about that is sometimes we forget that once people leave that structure of high school, home, security, stability, and they transition into college or uh, going away into the military or going into the work environment, that that can be a really, really difficult time for young adults because their structures have been shifted. So giving them the skills prior to that and still staying connected and involved during those transitional periods, even if they're pushing you away, just keep that lifeline available for them. Mm, that is so important. And I think as you're keeping that lifeline open to them, having those points of connection are really important too, because as your children evolve and grow into adults, it can feel, at least for me as a parent, a little scary. Like, I don't even know some, like I know their friends, but I don't know their families like I did when they were in elementary school. You know, like when you would plan play dates and you'd be friends with the mom too, or it's so different now. And so they have their own worlds, their own lives. And so for me, it's been really important to have little, even small points of connection. Like I make sure that there's at least two TV shows that we watch together. I always have a common book that we're reading. Like right now we're going through Libba Bray's young adult series, which is really, really good. And I think it's important to have those, those common ground points where you two are just sharing experiences that are, that are connected and that are uniting you all. Beautiful. Well, I will 
post on our Facebook page, that book you mentioned. And there's also a couple of great series for little children as well. Lisa Steinett has a wonderful series, uh, Crystals for Kids, Chakras for Kids, Auras for Kids. And so I'll post um, her name and, and a couple of others so that people have resources. But if you guys have resources or tips that that we haven't touched upon, because God knows we haven't touched upon you know, everything in this, in this little hour, uh, please feel free to share it with us. You can always email us enlightenedempaths at gmail.com, or you can message us on Facebook at enlightened empaths. We hope that you enjoyed this show and we hope that you have a wonderful, happy, full week. Don't forget as always to show up, do great work and share your light. Take care.